Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Today we're talking with Al Marshall. Hi, Al. G'day, Dave. How are you? Great, great. Now, Al was in the recent episode, episode 42, uh, briefly, where we did an engine start on the Bristol freighter. And um, I have to say that was one of the most exciting things I've done in a long time, and it's certainly one of the most exciting recordings I've made. Because uh, even when I listened back, I realised I was nervous as hell. <laughs> um, but... Uh, so tonight we're actually going to go through the story of that Bristol freighter restoration to bring it up to that stage where we could start the engines. Um, but Al, um, before we get onto that, let's just go back a bit and ask how did you get into aviation uh, to start with? Uh, I guess I think I was born into it um, with Dad, who was serving in the in the Air Force uh, when I was born, um, born in Blenheim, lived yep. in the married quarters as a as a toddler at Woodburn. Um, I don't remember a great deal about that, but um, as, a, as a very young boy, we moved to a Hakia. Okay. And uh, I do remember uh, a wee bit about a Hakia. Yeah. And um, and Dad was a machinist, so he was um, he was posted to the um, the machine shop up there. Right, right. And they would have been during the days of the uh, Skyhawks and the Stripe Masters, that sort of thing. Very early days. Yeah. 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 Um, he was involved in at, at Woodburn. He was in charge of making all the tooling for the okay. Skyhawk and um, all the support equipment oh, right, okay. uh, in the machine shop, yeah, so early days of the Skyhawk. Uh, our place centre, I think, in Bulls had a vampire, so they were still floating around, probably not operational by then, but um, yeah, we had a, we had a, yeah, a vampire in our place centre. Okay, that, that must have been some sort of early influence, I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I still remember out at uh, Palmerston Airport, there were still DC-3s there, I remember those. Oh, yeah, yeah. Vaguely, yeah. And, um, yeah, when I was about four, Dad got posted to Wigram. And, um, and again, we lived in the married quarters briefly until the house was built in Christchurch. So, yeah, so grew up on the air bases. Right, right, so you're one of those Air Force brats, as they call yeah, it. Little, yeah, Air Force, yeah, little sprog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yep, um... It's ironic that I got interested in Bristol freighters because um, I know Mum likes to tell everyone that they used to make me cry when when we were living at Woodburn because we weren't that far from um, obviously where the safe air guys operated right. their machines from and uh, yeah the ground runs and the takeoff and stuff used to apparently upset me quite quite strongly yeah <laughs> okay okay w- Wigram uh, must have been quite an interesting place to grow up I suppose oh yeah I loved it yeah. Um, you know, we used to have back then the Christmas parties for the kids. Yep. Um, rides on the fire engines, and um, you know, Santa would come in the in the Sioux helicopter, and there'd be the lo- lolly scramble and this and that, and um, yeah, and of course it was a busy base back then. Yeah, it would have been all the Harvards back then, I suppose. Yeah, yeah Harvards, um, Devons. Devons. Yeah. I, I remember 
I think he was a six-year-old when the Harvards were retired. Okay. Uh, I remember the saying on the news that they were keeping one example of the the noisy trainer in the historic flight, and I remember asking mum and dad why they're keeping the noisy one. <laughs> so I wasn't um, too understanding about that, but yeah, I certainly remember uh, racing outside when Devons used to fly overhead, and um, and uh, yeah, the, the later days of the of the Harvard, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. And so you would have um, sort of seen the, the genesis of the museum starting there too, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, as a sort of a teenager, um, I had not a lot to do with it, but I was very, um, very interested in it because um, Dad, he was he was in charge of Tech Wing at Wigram there, yeah. the NCIC of the machine shop. Yeah. And he was sort of getting fed up as being a flight sergeant, approving leave and... Um, and looking, watching his boys on the machines out in the workshop, and um, being a very, very hands-on bloke, um, he sort of missed all that. So he he looked at 717, he, he, which you know, as we as we know, is is the release form from the defence force. Yes, yes. Uh, when I was about 13 or 14, perhaps. Okay. Um, and the Air Force at the time says, well, yes, that's, that's all good, but we don't really want to lose you, you know, what's what's the reason behind this? And um, I think by then he'd done 25 years, I think, so it was, it was enough as an, as an NCO yeah. um, for someone who liked being in the workshops. So he said, I always want to go back in the workshops. And um, they said, well, we've, we've just started this, um, it was sort of gearing up for the opening of the museum, as it, the proper one as it is now. Right, right. And they needed set up a proper workshop, a dedicated workshop, so um, he got posted into the, into the museum, and um, yeah, he got his dust coat back on, and he was happy to another seven or eight years. Oh, great, great. Yeah, so I, I did have a lot of involvement as a as a kid watching that, that part of the museum evolve, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, what a what a great sort of uh, environment as well. I can see why you've turned out how you have, actually, <laughs> you know, especially with your dad being a hands-on guy uh, in the engineering as well. It's obviously rubbed off a lot. Yeah, well, we had we had a very big, um, well, not a very big workshop, but um, a very well-set-up workshop at home as yep. I was growing up. Um, I had my first set of safety glasses as a four-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> we had probably four lathes. So I remember the, the earliest I remember in the shed was four lathes. And, um, yeah, and some, wow. some quite nice... Um, metal machining sort of equipment in there too yeah so okay. yeah, from day one basically yeah right right and I guess it must have been sort of preordained that you were going to go into the Air Force did yeah. you did you uh, ever have I any never, other options or no I never thought of anything but really um, in fact I remember asking dad what what would be a good trade I really wanted to be a pilot yeah um, and I remember applying as a pilot but I'd, I'd sort of enjoyed myself too much at school, perhaps in those important years. Yeah. And um, I remember being, you know, you told throughout the whole school, work hard, work hard, and, and if you don't, there'll be trouble. And I remember in fifth and sixth form, they said, right, you know, you're starting to become adults now, it's up to you. Work yeah. hard if you want to. If you don't want to, you don't have to. Yeah, so we thought that was pretty cool and went to the um, soccer and pool for most of that year. And, um, yeah, so as a result, the Air Force um, didn't really want to know me as a, as a pilot candidate, yeah. Right, right. So I remember asking, asking Dad, well, what else is there? And uh, he sort of pointed me in the, um, obviously in the mechanical sort of um, direction. Yep, yep. And um, yeah, I sort of went from there, joined in 
89, April yep. 89, R2. Yep. Yeah, as a uh, an aircraft aircraft mechanic slash technician. Yeah. Cool. And did you train at Woodburn? Yes. Yep. Yeah, I've, I've sort of bounced around Woodburn all my life, really. But um, you know, being born there and then yep. growing up in Christchurch and then after high school moving to back to Woodburn. And yeah, all of the, the ground-based training was um, was at Woodburn. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And working on those Devons that you um, had been watching as a kid too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's yeah, it's the sort of thing you never know what's around the corner. Yeah. In your life, you know, you think, oh, that, yep. And then, however many years later, you, you surprise yourself as to what happens. Yeah. No, like you say, yeah, the um, trade training on those machines, yeah, was was Devons. I think we yeah. had one Iroquois there, which is had just turned up. Okay, okay, yep. Uh, we didn't do anything with that, but um, yeah, so yeah, basic engineering in the mechanics course was, was at Woodburn. Yeah. And where did you get posted to from there? I didn't leave. Um, ARS. Oh, yeah. Airframe yep. Reconditioning Squadron. Yep. Um, I forget how long, was it two years, I think, between courses, maybe. I forget now, but um, yeah, so I did I did a uh, an overhaul on the C-130 yep. and the P-3 and the A-4, one of each of those. So that was that was good experience. Seeing those aeroplanes in a million pieces on the you know on the floor and on shelves. Yep, yep. Um, I did a bit of time in the hydraulic bay, and um, yeah, and then back to four TDS for the senior trade training. Yep. Yeah, and. Um, back to ERS, Engine Reconditioning Squadron, after the, I think that text course was seven months, or it might have been five months. Yeah. And, um, yeah, off to the engine shop. Okay. Still at Woodburn. At Woodburn, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so it was an interesting one, because a lot of the guys went on the squadrons up in Auckland in the Hakia, and um, they sort of got to see the sharp end of the Air Force, and yeah. some guys did a lot of, lot of travelling. Uh, with those squadrons, but um, yeah, I, I sort of, for some reason, um, yes, focused, well, my focus was, was put at the sort of depot level maintenance, the, the overhaul sort of um, side of things, yeah. I, I did, um, after mechanics course, I spent, I think, four months at 104 flight. Oh, yeah, that'd be... Golden Eagle. Yep, that'd be quite interesting. So that was, um, was probably about as sharp as I got <laughs> at the end, but, um, but yeah, for someone who was I was still very keen on flying, and um, it was always the goal of getting a PPL. Yep. And um, and admittedly, when, when I joined the Air Force, and I, I was still very keen to be an Air Force pilot, they um, they said, well, you know, it's not out of the question. Right. We didn't know you in the recruiting office, but we can keep an eye on you throughout um, throughout your development, and um, and so there was always that goal of of a remaster. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so being on a um, on a, on a flying unit with the three Golden Eagles that we had. Um, yeah, I quite enjoyed that because there was opportunities to go flying and, um, yeah, and, you know, talking to the, the pilots that were that were based there. Yep, yep. Yeah, so it was sort of always in the back of my mind, yeah. So is that around about the time that you decided to remuster and... Uh, yeah, I, I put a remuster application in after, after the text course. Okay. Probably after three years of, of serving here. Yep, yep. And um, where did you go from there? Did you have to go through all the um, personnel stuff again with yeah. that? Or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
yeah, the the the, um, the trade training results they sort of they spoke highly enough that um, even though my school results weren't all that flash, you know, they were they were okay, but um, but yeah, they they saw they saw a bit more about who I was perhaps. Yep. Um, after knowing me for three years, and um, yeah, so that was it was a four or five day process up at, up in Hobsonville, and um, came away unsuccessful, but it was it was certainly good to to get the chance at it. Yep. Yep. And um, yeah, so after the yeah after trade training, yeah, that's when I looked at my PPL, and um, and I joined up and. And studied and worked with with Jay McIntyre, and when we were we were flatting at the time, so we both chased our PPLs at the same time. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And um, yeah. So. And and that's sort of when you got involved with the Mulberry Air Club, I guess, is it? Yeah. 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 I I, I soloed in nineteen ninety um, during my mechanics training. Oh yes. Yeah. Um, because I had done some flying prior to joining up. I'd, right. I'd been an office boy in an era, um, in a flying school in Christchurch. Oh yeah, yeah. Prior to joining up, yeah. So I sort of got to the point where I was close to going solo prior to, to joining the Air Force, but not quite. I, I don't think my student pilot's license had turned up, which you needed back then. Yep. Yeah. So I um yeah so I soloed in 1990. Then I put it on hold until until the end of the senior trade training. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, once you so. once you'd actually got your um. PPL, um, did that make any difference to the way that the Air Force saw you as a potential pilot, or? Um, um, yes and no. It, it shows it shows that there is the interest there, yeah. and that you're keen, you know, you're keen to get off your backside and, and do it. Yeah. Um, I do know from experience that they they like to teach you from day one. Right. Right. Um, that that may have changed now, but um, yeah. It, it did show, but it did show there's a bit of focus there, and I think what may have swung them at the time, because I, I was quite involved in competition flying, and in one of my competitions, uh, yeah, the national championships, I won the the precision landing, the uh, precision circuit and spot landing competition. Oh right, okay. Yeah, so that put me in the New Zealand flying team to compete against Australia. Oh right. So I think perhaps after. After that, and I've done, I did, I think seven years in the engine shop yep. in, in various bays around that engine shop, and at the time I was sort of, after seven years, I was due for promotion to sergeant, and I've done the sergeant's qualifying course, and what I was sort of lacking at the first time of going through Purcell, um, I developed over that time. So perhaps sergeant's qualifying and and the results from the, from um, the national championships. Yeah. Maybe this guy is worth another crack. So yeah, I got the second go at Purcell. Oh great. Yeah. And this time you got through, obviously. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, that was 1998. Yeah. And on my group, I was up with a whole lot of guys that have been offered um, from Australia. So I was the only Kiwi in my in my group. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. That made me quite determined, actually. Yeah. And then a good mate of mine who I'd had trained with, he was on a, on the same board, but in a, in a different group. He wanted to become a flight engineer. Okay. On the C-130. Yeah. And uh, he'd gone from technician as well. 
um, but his results were good enough that they said, well, have you thought, thought about flying? So mm-hmm. when um, he got offered as a bit of a bonus, um, I thought, by crikey, you know, it made me even more determined. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when, when Jack was offered it, when he didn't really want it, and that's all I wanted, and then I was on a course with um, probably eight Australians. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there was a bit of focus there, and, um, and of my group, I think I was the only one that got picked in the end. Oh, right. Yeah, so I went from, yeah, this the first visit to Purcell, which was, was very difficult because I was, I was on um, selection terms with the GSIs that I had um, been trained with on my recruit course. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so very hard to make yourself seen or heard, you know, as you know with um, on uh, exercises like that when there's GSIs. Yes. GSIs and PTIs, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I was, I was quite pleased with that, and that was, so that was the year late 1998 when I got the nod. Yep. The most of 1999 was um, going through the the IOTC, the Office of Training course, and then the basic aviation medicine course, parachute course, survival course. Um, yep. Yeah, it was a busy... It was a busy year, that one. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and I guess before that, between between the text course and and the um, the nod for that was when I got involved in the, some of the uh, syndicate aeroplanes too. Okay. Yeah, the um, the little Andrew Special single seat home built, and uh, and we imported the Nanchang in that time as well. So right, right, right. So that was the foundation of the Melbourne Warbirds Association which of course became the foundation for the classic fight of the air show. So um, that was an interesting, interesting time to be involved in, in old aeroplanes in Marlborough. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun, yeah, because um, there was very little uh, vintage machinery floating around at that time, yeah, and we imported two Nanchangs, and, and Graham Orphan imported the South African Harvard at the same time, so yep. very quickly... Um, there became some old aeroplanes in the region. Yeah, that's really sort of built up since then, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I remember, um, yeah, Jay McIntyre had his Jodel. I had my little Andrew Special. Um, Graham was just finishing his Tiger Moth. Yeah. And then the two Nanchangs and the Harvard turned up, and um, yeah, it sort of went from there. Yeah, yeah. So this um, IOTC course that you're doing was that actually at Woodburn? Yeah, it was. Oh right, okay. So you're yeah. s- you're still still there, still at Marlborough. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, and I think that was that was a number of months of um, um, yeah, you know when you do a recruit course, you learn how to be an airman. Yep. And and do your job, and then the officer training course is more of the management and um, the leadership side of the air force. Right, right. Um, and it, it is um, these days necessary. Um, yeah, for the, the commissioned ranks to, to become a pilot navigator or or um, a lot of those um, yeah commissioned branch jobs here. Yeah. Yep. D- did you find the um, um, course to become an officer sort of as dis- as difficult as um, becoming an airman at, at the beginning GSTS GSTS um, course or uh, after that much time in the air force was a bit of a doddle. It wasn't. It wasn't a doddle. The, the leadership side of things I found quite difficult. Yeah. Um, 
they they trained you, but the leadership exercises, you know, they became sort of very similar to what we did at Purcell when you're trying to make a um, turn planks into a bridge sort of thing. Yeah. Get across the raging torrent. Um, and then they became more and more um, involved with coordinating um, coordinating on on defence exercises, um, supposed airstrikes with skyhawks and stuff like that. Right. Um, and and leading people in those sorts of ex, um, exercises. So I found that that was pretty tough going. Yeah. Just yep. to keep that side of things going, but um, but the, the studying of of military history and and that sort of thing, yeah, it was really enjoyable. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Okay, okay. Uh, there was the different nature of the, the parades and the drill. Obviously, you, you're not one of the lads hanging out in the squad or the flights, you know, just um, doing as you're told. You're suddenly out the front there with a the sword yep. um, shouting orders, and you can easily make yourself look pretty silly if you don't pay attention to what what's going on there. Yep, yep. Um, but I had, like I say, when, when I was keen to go through this remaster process on parades I'd always sort of just just sort of pay enough attention to what the the flight commanders or the squadron commanders were doing yep yep so that it wasn't too much of a shock um, and uh, I did actually one day actually have to do a parade as a flight commander so on a, on a big parade with a big audience and you know several squadrons of people yeah if, um, if you got it wrong you look pretty silly right and all your mates still in the in the ranks, you know, yeah. The corporal and the sergeant. Yeah, they all know you. Yeah, they know you. <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah. If you did it wrong in front of them, gee, yeah, <laughs> yeah, there'd be bears. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so um, you completed the um, officer training and moved on to actually flying training, did you? Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We yep. did. That was all at Woodburn, and then we got posted briefly up to Auckland for the parachute and um, survival oh, yeah. courses yep. and um, the, the human factor course that they run which was which was really really good yeah um, I think the biggest thing that I got out of that was the decompression chamber oh yeah 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 I went through that in my um, safety and surface training yeah pretty amazing yeah amazing absolutely it's um as, as a commercial pilot now I still fall back on the experience that I got from that Yep. and it's a shame they can't squeeze more people through it. Yeah, yeah. Um, especially when it comes to hypoxia. Well, obviously yep. that's why you're in there. Um, but they say that everyone's everyone's um, symptoms and signs and symptoms and behaviour when you're hypoxic, everyone is different. Yep. But you always have those same symptoms. Yeah. Personally, yeah. So, so they said when you start feeling a bit a bit whacked out and spacey pay attention to what you're feeling because it will stay with you so in my case um, my ankles go tingly if I get hypoxic oh wow my ankles and feet feel really tingly so, so I'm aware of that now so if I, if I see that you know there hopefully there's warning bells or some sort of trigger to make me think why do I feel that right right yeah but um, no no the, the loss of performance and thinking and um, decision making and behaviour yeah it's fascinating to watch it is and when you're actually the person in there without the oxygen you don't really realise how bad it is do you? No, no it's nasty but you're watching other people and it, and it's, it really is, it's comical but it's quite scary yeah, 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 and you get to a point where you enjoy it, you become a bit pissed on it yeah, yeah and, exactly um, euphoric, yep. and the minute you get that man that's it, you're over yeah, 
yep. start enjoying that year. Um, but we had we had a civil nurse. She she came through with us, and she got hypoxic and got a bit um, upset by it. Yeah. And then when she went back on oxygen, she hyperventilated. Oh. So her blood oxygen levels went from being quite quite bad to then suddenly very elevated. Yeah. Yeah. Next thing she was on the floor and um, spasms and and um, yeah uncontrollable fit on the floor. Wow. Yeah. And. Um, yeah, it was my turn after her to do the the individual um, oxygen exercise. So when I saw that, <laughs> I wasn't really keen to do it myself. Yeah. Yeah. I can understand that. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, that was, yeah. So, um, yeah, like I say, that, that should be something that all, anyone that wants to be a commercial pilot or certainly fly in the flight levels, you know, where you need oxygen or pressurization, um, yeah, you know, it's, it could be a lifesaver in some cases, yeah. Do, do you know if there's other institutes in New Zealand that actually do that training other than the Air Force? Don't, I don't think there is. Not not that I'm aware of, no. No, no. In fact, the interesting thing about that, you might have noticed when you climb into that chamber, Yeah. it looks medieval, it looks like they're going to try and torture you in the thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And when you look at it on the outside, um, with all the big oh, gauges and <laughs> yeah. cranks and... Oh, yeah, but um, on the inside... Was one thing I didn't notice, but it was painted bright pink. Yes, I actually do remember it being that colour. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When you get hypoxic, one of the things you lose is your colour vision, and you're not aware of that at the time because they're, they're giving you exercises on um, mathematics and problem yep. solving and drawing pictures and stuff. Yep. And then you become hypoxic, and the room goes grey. Ah. grey, and you you don't notice it, and then when you whack the oxygen mask back on, and it's pure oxygen. Yeah, colour vision just comes back immediately. Ah, okay. Ah, right. So that's um, that's really interesting. It, it's actually, um, the the lack of oxygen uh, impairing your sight is something that I talked with uh, Noel Cruz a few weeks ago. Yeah, I heard uh, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, I put that up onto the um, onto the uh, Facebook page as well. I think, um, or it might have been on the forum. But that was um, that that's really interesting. How he reckoned that you need to. At night, you need to be flying um, on oxygen at four thousand feet or above, otherwise your night vision's um, buggered. Yep, yep. So that that yeah, it's it's interesting stuff, isn't it? Oh yeah, it's fascinating. And um, yeah, I, you know, we spent we were in there for oh, probably a good hour. Yeah. We didn't do the explosive decompression, which was the next one where they, I think they took they were going to take you to twenty five or thirty thousand feet. Yep. And then have a simulated explosive decompression and just dump all that pressure out. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, they they had decided there was a training risk of eardrums because we were going to go into the air trainer very shortly after that. Ah, right, okay. And, um, yeah, there was a training risk of people. Yeah, it was another medical you had to go through to make sure you wouldn't um, get, get hurt by it. Yeah, I don't think we did that in our training. I, I can't remember doing that. Mm. Um Mind you, it probably isn't necessary for safety and service guys. We were there to, to learn about oxygen systems and oxygen masks, that sort of thing, um, as part of our trade. Um, so we probably didn't do quite as much as what the pilots did because we weren't going up as much. So yeah, yeah. But uh, and you mentioned um, doing a, a parachute jump. Was that a wet drill jump into the sea or? Yeah, ours, ours was a bit of a dag. We did um, parachute entry in the base pool. Yep. Yep. So that we would we'd, we'd get strung up in a harness 
and then wheeled out over the pool and then dropped. Yep, yep, I and remember doing that. would race alongside and pull a parachute over the top of you in the water. Yep. So that you could navigate your way out of it and not be, not be scared by it. Yes, yep. Because yep. I, I could see when I was, you know, sort of, well, here comes my turn, I don't like this. Um, you know, you could probably find yourself getting pretty scared being underneath that nylon in the pool. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you're all dressed up in, um, in a helmet and this and that and what have you, but... Yeah, they gave us some sort of techniques on how to deal with it. You know, if you if you did find yourself freaking out, then you could just lie on your back yep. and breathe through the the mesh of the nylon. Right. Which um I hadn't even thought about. And and then if you find yourself a seam in the parachute, which is not hard to do, it's like a river. You if you're lost in the bush, you find a river. Yeah. And follow it. Follow and, it down, yeah. And that seam will take you either to the vent in the centre of the parachute, where you can poke your head out and have a have a breather and have a think about it, or it'll take you clear of the of the, the nylon out by the the risers. So, so either way, following a seam in, in the parachute will will take you to the, the place where you're not so freaked out. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, most of those seams have an actual um, uh, nylon cord running through it as well, so it's fairly easy to follow. Yeah, yeah. So we did that as as the initial part of it. We did parachute roll, the parachute roll. Um, Procedure of hitting the ground. We did that uh, at PTSU out of their. I think they had a mock-up C-130. Oh yep, yep. And we jumped out of that. That was when Timor was flaring up. Okay. So they'd <laughs> they'd initially wanted us to jump out of do a wet jump out of an Iroquois. Yep. And I think three squadron thought that doing a static line jump out of a helicopter wasn't such a good idea, which. Yeah, I tend to agree with. Yeah, well, I don't remember it ever happening when I was. Uh, no, involved. no, because the C-130s were all being deployed out to Timor. Right. And we were going to have our own, our own Hercules to do our jumps out of yep. into, the, into the wider matter. Yeah. Um, but then they suddenly all had to go to East Timor on deployment. And oh, okay. Well, it wasn't a deployment; it was an actual um, operation, wasn't it? Back then, it was, a, it was some bad stuff going down. Yep. And um, yeah, so they queried three squadron about doing static lines out of a out of an Iroquois. And, <laughs> yeah. That really doesn't sound very um. Much no, no. I know. mean, with a rotor right behind you. Yeah, well, God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, static lines fine, flapping down the side of a fuselage, but not when there's tail rotors and main rotors and. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. so in the end, it became a parasail course. Oh. Okay. Yeah. You know, like you do in the islands, you get yep. dragged out behind a boat. Oh, okay. Except we didn't have a boat. We had a three and a half litre or four litre Hilux or something else. so yeah and you did that actually on the airfield yeah yeah at Finopo. it was it was a pretty hard case but um, but we were using the same parachutes that you do your wet wet jumping into the water yeah and I think they had an 18 foot per second descent rate or something they weren't they weren't steerable they weren't breakable like you know the, the flying wing sort of parachutes yeah sport yep. parachutes you know you can do a lot more with them yep I think if you had to try and steer around parachute like this, around power lines or whatever, in real life, you would just have to pull on a set of risers on one side and, and hope that it made you turn. But yeah, exactly. That's exactly it, yeah. Yeah, so we had this um, harness, chest harness, and then a bloody big rope, and the ute, you barely see the ute on the other side of the airfield sort of thing. Okay. <laughs> and then they just, um, the two-way radio and... 
yeah, we put us, yeah, you ready? All right. And they just floored on this Hilux. And we got dragged up to about five or 600 feet behind the Hilux. Yep. And, um, and then basically when the Hilux got to the other end of the fence, or the other end of the airfield, of course they had to stop. And then that's when you felt your rope go. Oh, okay. Go limp on your chest. Yep, yep. And then it was all, it was all fun until you start thinking, gee, that ground's coming up bloody quick and I can't do anything about it. Yep. And, yeah, if you didn't do that parachute roll procedure, of the, you know, the knees and hip and shoulder sort of roll, Yep. Um, yeah, you'd probably, you'd probably break something. Oh, definitely, definitely, yep. yep. Yeah. Did, did you not use the um, the tower on the square there that had that parachute tower? Yeah, no, we didn't, no. Oh, right, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Mind you, that was pretty dangerous. <laughs> well, it comes down to training risk again, you know, if they were concerned about our eardrums. Yeah. But um, you got to do an 18-foot-second bloody parachute descent onto the ground. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so that was that was the parachute course. It was the, the basic basic parachute course. Yeah, it was done behind a highlight. <laughs> that's, that's actually really quite interesting. That's quite cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... Um, uh, it would have been nice to, you know, do a. I I, I had done a, a few of us after our recruit course did um, static line jumps at Woodburn. Right, right. Um, fun, but yeah, it would have been nice, or good fun to do one into the water, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in my day, when I was in the parachute bay up there, they used to do a lot of it out of the um, Andovers and drop them into the sea. Um, but of course, by your time, that uh, going through there, the Andovers would have been gone, were they? Yeah. 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 Okay. And um, so then off to Ahakia and onto the air trainers. Yeah, yeah. Um, January 2000 was, um, was um, yeah, posted to Ahakia for the air trainer course. Yeah. And, um, yeah, that was interesting. That was damn hard work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, first, I forget how many weeks. I don't think we flew the aircraft until March. Okay. There was a lot of ground-based training. Probably February, February, maybe March. We we actually got on the aircraft. Um, but yeah, a lot of yeah. It's, it's, you're basically doing all the all the training, classroom work for a New Zealand commercial license. Yeah. Um, with a bit of focus on on the military side of things. Not not a great deal of military focus, uh, other than um, just the attention to detail that you might not perhaps demand out of a private pilot student right right um well definitely yeah it's, it's just a completely different way of, of training someone you, know, they, they, you, you learn at their at their at their pace yeah yeah um which is fine because you know um it's, it's the way that they want it to run but um our, our whole course our air trainer course was eight months long and our course was plotted on a board along with the others there was a junior and a senior course at all times yep and our whole course was plotted. We could tell on a certain day at a certain time we would be learning um, certain part of instrument flying or certain aspect of formation flying or general handling. Yeah. And if you didn't stick to that schedule or if you couldn't stick to that schedule, um, yeah, you, you'd struggle. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, but the good thing I think that I, I picked out of that was that was the discipline that they're expecting you to do. Yeah, yeah. And and also the attention to the de um, detail. Okay. Not not accepting being fast or slow or high or low or whatever. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was good. Um, 
Do, do you think that your um, previous uh, flight experience stood you in good stead, or, or was it actually a hindrance when you had to retrain through the Air Force system? I, I, yeah. In the early part, it was it was working well. Yeah, and it was, it was showing on the on the sortie on the records on yep. the reports and stuff. Yep. One thing I hadn't trained, I hadn't been trained on at PPL level was was the attitude flying, flying the aircraft by setting a picture in the window. Yeah. Um, there's attitude and there's performance flying, and attitude flying is is looking out the window and and setting up the aircraft with reference to the horizon. Yeah. And a power setting. And we had this activity cycle was lookout attitude instruments. So most of the time was looking out the window at what's outside, and then brief look at the at the horizon perhaps, or to get the attitude of the aircraft, and then you're backing up the performance by looking at the instruments. Right, right. Whereas I would always flown at that point, performance flying. So you sort of get the airplane to say 1,500 feet. Yeah. And then to keep it at 1,500 feet, you're sort of looking at the altimeter the whole time. Okay, okay, yep. Whereas you know, the attitude attitude plus power equals performance. So if you set the, you know, we had certain rivets on the on the windscreen frames or part of the canopy latch. Um, you know, if you're doing a steep turn to the left, you'd put certain part of that canopy latch onto the horizon. Right. If you had the right power setting, the airplane would do exactly what you're wanting it to do. Okay. Okay. So I, I hadn't been doing that up until then, so I, I struggled with that um, until until I started getting that sorted. Yeah. Yep. yep. That was that was difficult. Um, but then for me, it was just the pace of learning. And um, yeah, I, I didn't. I yeah, I'm trying to think how. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was damn hard. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it would be an enjoyable airplane. I'd love to have another go at one. The CT4E, yep. beautiful little airplane to fly. Um, you know, it made the Nanchang seem like a, a sloppy, a sloppy old blooming yuck. Okay. Yeah, okay. Very, very. Um, yeah, obviously very, very powerful for the guys that had their first solo in that airplane. You know, that, that was quite an event for them. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, three hundred horsepower versus you know I soloed in a in a Tomahawk. Right. Um, yeah, no, I take my hat off to the boys that turned up off the street and did their first solo on that airplane. Wow, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I got, I got eight months into the, into the trainer, the CD4. I, I got, I got removed in August. Okay. After starting in January. Yep. Yeah. Um. So I got a lot of the general handling. Low-level navigation was what got me. Ah, uh, right. Staying ahead of the airplane. Um. And and coping with the emergencies and scenarios that got given yep. on a, on a low level run, you know, you might be given a target that you have to get the airplane to at a very specific time. Yep. And <clears throat> if you're not over here, that target within you know, ten seconds is sloppy. Five right. seconds is pretty good, but if if you use the techniques that they taught you, um, when we did our solo ones on our Wiseau camp in Whangarei, um there were quite a group of us that were. Um, within one, two, three seconds, maybe, of our time on target. Yep. Yeah. But then when you come to do your check, that was a solo one, so you sort of, um, it's a different sort of pressure on you that you're yep. putting on yourself. When you do your check with an instructor and you've still got that time on target, 
but then you've got emergencies, you've got engine failures along your route and what have you, and um, and of course there's the pressure of having an instructor doing the check. Yep. And um, yeah, I didn't I didn't cope with that side of it very well. So um, yeah, so it was low-level nav that, that tripped me up. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But um, I got through a lot of the aerobatics training. Um, probably two thirds of the instrument flying training, which was very useful later on down the track. Yep. Um, formation flying. Um, night flying. Yep. Yeah. Oh, it's all good stuff, isn't it? That's all, uh, you know, stuff that's contributed to where you are now. Oh so. yeah, yeah. And I, I still use a lot of the, um, a lot of the techniques that they, well, a lot of the, the sort of disciplines that they te- teach you. Yep. yep. Um, I still use that day to day now. Right. You know, there's one thing we learnt that if, um, if you if you're high or you know if you're not where what you want the airplane to be, just remove half the error. So if you if you're 100 feet out in your height. Um, you can just halve the error and then halve it again. Right. Um, things like that. Um, what else? There was another one. Yeah. If if you can if you can look after all the stuff you can you have control over. If you look after that day to day all the time. Yeah. When something that you don't have control over happens, um, then you're you're in a place where you can you can deal with it. Right. You're not playing catch up. So yeah, stuff like that I use all the time today. Yeah. 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 Okay, and for the listeners out there who don't know what you do today, you're um, a seven three seven captain, aren't you? Uh, first officer. Yeah. First yeah, officer. Sorry, yeah. Seven now for a living. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you're right. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of the discipline side of things that yeah that carry through. Yeah. Um, just um, just briefly uh, tell us, you know, when you got the chop from the course, um, t- where did you go from there, and and um, did you decide to go back to the ground trade or, or get out and go airline or, or what was that? Yeah, I, I got um, I got the option of of, of re, uh, reversion back back to the ranks. Yep. Back into the trade um, as a sergeant at a, a base or squadron of my choice. That was nice. Um, there wasn't any sort of officer rank jobs that I was all that qualified for, so there wasn't that option. But um, yeah, yep, they were happy for me to take reversion yep um, no but I, I thought no I still want to I've got some good experience so I'm still keen to do that yep so I, yeah I got out of that point and it was after 11 years service here right right so I went uh, back to Blenheim okay okay yeah yeah I got a job at Safe Air um, back in the engine shop really yeah oh right 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 yeah okay yep. so what sort of engines were you uh, working on was it quite an array or yeah, um, well, I actually got hired uh, as a machinist. Yep. Which was ironic because it's Dad's trade. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, because Mike Nichols, who who hired me, was was the boss of uh, of the engine squadron. Yep. Well, by then it was run by Safe Air, it was an engine section. Um, and he used to work with Dad at Wigram. Oh. So right. He was hopeful that it, some of his machining sort of skills would have rubbed off on me and. Um, so I was hired as a machinist making support tooling for the Command Sea Sprite. Oh, right, yep, yep. Okay. Yeah, so I did that for a year, which was um, just a brilliant job, absolutely brilliant job. And then um, I worked on the T-56, the Allison T-56. Yep, yep. On the overhaul and um, overhaul and performance testing of those. 
and then briefly towards the end there, I got sent off to Israel. Right. On the the uh, Skyhawk reactivation project. And um, that must have that must have been pretty interesting. Yeah, that was. Yeah, that was. Someone like me who likes doing old stuff up. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was brilliant. I was there for four months. Okay. Getting those jets out of desert storage and getting them airworthy. Wow, pretty neat, eh? Yeah. Yeah, no, it was. Yeah, it was really good fun. Yeah. Okay. And then um, when you come back from Israel, what happened then? Uh, I spent a few more months back on the Allison T-56 line. Yep. And that's when I really started chasing the flying. Um, I did my commercial. I saved some money by then, so I did my commercial license, my multi-engine instrument rating, yep. and a gas turbine rating, with a view to using that experience on the air trainer. And, um, yeah, getting getting some work out of it. Oh, great, great. And uh, so you then went for the airline role as a, as a pilot. Hmm. Yep, yep. And I won't say I was lucky, but I didn't have to go down the instructing path or the parachute parachute dropping or glider towing sort of path that a lot of guys have to. Yep. Um, yeah, I was, I was a bit lucky with, with the Air Force experience that I was able to go straight into a, 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 a revenue flying job. Yep, yep. Admittedly, it was on a, a Britain Norman Islander and a Piper Aztec sort of operation, which was a brilliant apprenticeship. I wouldn't have it any other way. You know, you could go into a turbine sort of job, um, perhaps, but no, that was that was a good a good apprenticeship flying out of Auckland. Oh, yeah. Up into Great Barrier Island and up and around Northland and what have you. Oh, wow, that'd be great to fly around there. Yeah, yeah. And again, it's single pilot flying, so uh, there's all the discipline and and the demanding nature of that flying. Yep. Old airplanes and old radio gear and very little experience. It's a sort of a, a nasty place to be. Yeah, and paying passengers on board, does it? Yes, yep. yeah. Yep. It's a lot of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was, and it was yeah brilliant flying. I really really enjoyed that. Job. I did that. Um, I was there for two years. Okay. Okay. Put my hand up for a, a turbine job. Yep. And that was just nat- natural progression. Yep. It was with uh, Eagle Airways on the 1900 Beechcraft. Right. Right. Yeah, which put me back, back in Blenheim again. Right, and this brings you back down to uh, uh, Marlborough Air Club again as well. Yeah. Yeah. So like I say, I've sort of bounced around Marlborough and Omaka ever since I've been alive, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I, I did um, I did five years on the 1900. Okay. And um, and again, I really enjoyed that job, too. Uh, very, very, very a fun airplane to fly. Yep. Uh, um, yeah. Extremely powerful. It's, um, it's, it's, yeah, a lot of people say, oh, it's, it's a really sophisticated airplane, but, but it's not. It's, it's made to be flying flying by one person if you really have to. Okay. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a powerful airplane. It's got it's got good good equipment, um, but it's it's not sophisticated in that it doesn't have an autopilot, um, yeah, which is the bread and butter of what I do now is controlling an airplane using knobs and switches as opposed to hands and feet. Right, right, yeah. But yes, it's still a very, very enjoyable job. And the, the routes that we flew, you know, being provincial, you might fly out of Blenheim, we could come down to Christchurch and then bang off over to Hokitika and back into Christchurch, then go down to Wanaka, back to Christchurch, and back to Blenheim. Right. And you'd, you'd do all that, and you'd, you'd be back in back in Blenheim by about 2 in the afternoon. 
Okay. Great. Yes, yes. So that, yes, that, like I say, put me back in back in Blenheim, and I sort of spent a lot of time. And I guess that's where the, the freighter came back into it. Yeah, exactly. We really should get onto that because we've been talking for almost an hour now. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's easy to do and talk to pilots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's talk about flying. Let's talk about me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that Bristol, you know, it had been sitting there since 1986, and it was the guardian of our air club club rooms, really. Yep. And I, yeah, I, rem- I remember when I joined up. It was it had just been delivered to to a marker. Yeah. And it was it was ground run up until about 1990, I think, and then it got towed onto this little pad, concrete pad, and it sort of stayed there. And it wasn't it was, certainly wasn't forgotten because the, the friends of the Bristol was a was a group that that looked after it. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly on. You know, it's, it's not. You know, it's, it's as big as a block of flats. Yeah. It's yeah. not something that you can. Uh, you know, it takes it takes time and a, a lot of effort to to maintain it. And and for a long time, I sort of thought, I wonder if those engines would still would still go. Right. And never really thought too much of it until about 2007, I think. I actually thought seriously, you know, would, would those would that thing? Because by then, the classic fight of the air show was 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 growing too. Yep. yep. I had thought for a long time it'd be quite cool to have that thing on the other side of the fence. And if those engines were able to be run, it would be a, an interesting thing to add some uniqueness or more uniqueness to that air show. Absolutely. Yeah. So and I'd always been told that someone else had wanted to do it and and the Aero Club who actually owns the aircraft said, No, this it's not no, it's the static display, it's there to be um looked at and and that was a myth. So yeah. I, I asked one or two people at the Aero Club level and through the Friends of the Bristol yeah. little group. And um there was very little roadblocks put up. Okay. At all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, most people said, Crikey, that's a good idea. That's great. That's that's really good that there was that um that willingness to, to just jump in and do it. Yeah, and it needed it needed some someone with, with time yep. on their hands to do it and by then I'd I'd um I got my command on the beach, so I was Eagle Eagle Captain and our roster at times was 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 pretty good in terms of time off and what have you. Yep. And and the nature of our shifts, some some started early in the morning and would knock off by midday or you might start at one or two in the afternoon and, and fly into the night. So there was even though it was a work day, there was still time to do stuff, so Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. In, in terms of obstacles to getting that thing going, there were very few. Once I actually asked one or two people and then pulled the cows off, yeah. it was all go. And it um, it took very little work to really to get that to get those engines going. It's actually quite remarkable. I, I remember when you um, first posted onto the Wings of New Zealand forum that you were intending to do that. Um, the the interest that came forward um, from people just seemed to it, it just seemed to come alive as a project, didn't it? And um, 
we all around the world followed every sort of step of the way uh, of you starting to get those engines going and, and pulling out all the old birds' nests and, and all that. And it was a really great um, story that developed. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pleased I recorded it on the forum. Yeah. Because now it's there for, you know, for everyone and, you know, anyone can read it. And, uh, and I'm sort of hopeful that uh, there might be some other groups around the, maybe not around New Zealand, but certainly around the world that have got an old piston prop liner sitting in the back of their airfield. That, um, that it might be something that someone else could probably do. But yeah, absolutely. But oh, I was surprised. I was very surprised that you know that airplane had been sitting out side for eighty six, so you know twenty odd years. Yep. And one engine, when I got to it, it couldn't turn the propeller. It was it was frozen solid, even though it had been inhibited. Yeah. Um, it was frozen solid. The, the left hand engine. It was able to be turned, and and that in itself, the fact that you could turn it, you know, the, the minute you inhibit an engine like that, you spray, you know, preservative oil in and inside and out and everywhere you can, right, to pr- pr- um, preserve those cylinders and, and and pistons. The minute someone swings on a propeller, of course, the piston goes and skids all that oil off, right, right, and it's gone. Yep. So to, to have that done to it, I'm, I'm just surprised. Staggered that, especially a sleeve valve engine, yeah, with all the, the the moving surface area inside those engines, that it um, it was able to be reactivated. The the actual engines themselves are probably some of the most complicated radio engines that you could tackle, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They that's that's the impression they give when you when you take the when you look inside them. They look terribly complicated because of the sleeve valve system. Yeah. But that's only because there's 14 of everything. If you were to have a single sleeve valve engine, a single cylinder sleeve valve engine, that would be incredibly simple. Okay, okay. Yeah, it's just because you multiply it. And of course, it's got that beautiful drivetrain of cogs and gears and needle roller bearings, and it's all hidden away. You can't see it. Um, it's a shame that you can't see it, but the minute you take one to pieces, you think, crikey, what have, what have we got here? <laughs> So how much research did you have to do before you even started pulling the things apart? Did you have to talk to a lot of people who had worked on them and that sort of thing? Yeah, yeah, there were still a lot of people around, uh, the likes of Ian Garlick, Lester Hope, uh, Bruce Lawrenson, who's a, a guide at the Aviation Heritage Centre. Yep. Um, here, Peter Nelson, there's still still guys around, and, and likewise, a lot, of, a lot of air crew, a lot of retired pilots. Right. And we also had a full set of manuals for the, for the Bristol and the, the Hercules engine at the Heritage Centre. So, yeah, I got to that airplane on my first day on, on my stepladder, because, you know, the, the cockpit on that airplane, as, as you know, is complete. Yep. So you could you could establish that that didn't need any work, and I remember hooking the um, battery cart up to it one day, and jumping up in the, in the cockpit there and turning the, turning the master switch on. Yep. And 20 years of people tinkering up there, crew bell was going off in the cabin and wiper blades were flapping around and, <laughs> and she burst into life and I think the old the old airplane got quite excited by that <laughs> and yeah the, the gyro started winding up and lights were still working and you could hear pumps and this and that and yeah so it sort of gave me the impression that there wasn't there was a good chance that you know if you could get those engines to turn and 
there were no fish hooks in any of the systems, then it would probably be a goer. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so I got to it with my stepladder and took the cows off. I opened the cows, and that's when I thought, oh, maybe not. Because <laughs> those birds' nests, they were, yeah, yeah, they were pretty, pretty chocker. Yeah. And a lot of the nests had turned to compost, yep. and they were actually, it was actually soil. It wasn't, it was no longer straw and stuff, it was actually soil. Wow. Inside the cylinder heads and fins and, yeah. But, um, like I say, there's, again, there's 14 of everything, so by the time you clean out 14 cylinders and the gaps around them, uh, the engine cleaned up and appeared quite quite clean pretty quick. Yeah. Right, right, yep. Yeah, and then all it took really was just to free them up. We had some... I just got some kerosene and filled all the cylinders, that, the radial engine cylinders that point point upwards. Yeah. Pulled the plugs out and um, just poured kerosene into into the engine. And then of course it seeps through everything and dribbles into the lower cylinders. Yeah. So the yeah those both those engines were freed up within a day of each other. Okay. Yeah, which was a surprise. Yeah, especially as I say the starboard engine that was rock solid. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So from then, it just it just it was just a matter of going through all the systems, oil system, fuel system, ignition system, and and we were lucky with that airplane. It was it was chosen for preservation because it had aluminium fuel tanks in uh, the wings, whereas most of them had rubber bags. Right. Right. So that would have been a problem, I think. They they wouldn't, well, they wouldn't be reliably, um, were reliable enough to probably put gas back into into a rubber bag tank. Right, yeah. Yeah. I do remember having trouble with the fuel system because I chose a specific fuel tank on the starboard wing that was small enough that we could use it through a cross-feed system that you saw the other day yep. to run both engines up to one tank. Yep, yep. And, and I remember looking at the fuel gauges and with the booster pumps running and the cross-feed open, we could only get eight or nine... 10 psi perhaps in the fuel system and I knew f- through the manuals that the um, carburetors ran at 30 psi right and for some reason I sort of focused on the fact that we were only getting 8 or 9 or 10 so I'd gone through all the valves I was looking for obstructions and hoses and outputs of pumps and then when it was actually when I went to, went to talk to someone about it one of the old pilots says oh no we only used to see um you know, six psi was fine. Okay. Because you're using those booster pumps to provide fuel to the carburetor. Yep. And then once the engine's running, as soon as it was started, then the the pressure went up to thirty psi. So so here was me troubleshooting a, a problem that wasn't even there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that was yeah that that probably took longer than I that probably needed actually. Right. Right. And um, tell me about the the day that you got the engine started. Yeah, yeah, it was that was a good day. That one, that was that was a Friday, and it was a pretty hard case because I'd been working on it. I think by the end it was about two and a half months, just tinkering away. Yep, yep. And it's not something you can do. Um, well, you can't do it stealthily. No. Like you're just doing it, tinkering away in your shed, and then one day you bring it outside and, sh- and start showing it off. You know, I've been on on the ladder and I had the cows off it, and I've been in and out of the airplane for three months, so everyone sort of knew around the airfield yep. what was going on. 
Yep. So it was one of those things that might have been nice to do without an audience, but as people know at Omaka, you can't, a lot of things you just can't do. Yeah. Guaranteed an audience. So yep. we had a big, big crowd of people there and a lot of old pilots, a lot of old engineers. And I'd chosen Bill Ashley to, um, to talk me through it. And Bill used to be the chief pilot of, of Safe Air. He retired okay. off the Argosy. Yep. And it was interesting because the day before we had the power, um, battery card all hooked up and, and we're just up in the flight deck sort of just chewing the fat about it and Bill was in the, in the pilot seat and I remember saying to him, just turn the power on if you like. And he just reached down to that, that accumulator switch that you saw yep. without even looking at it. Right, so right. And flicked it on. And he, he surprised himself. He goes, crikey. <laughs> you know, muscle memory. Yeah, yeah. In his case, he just knew exactly what switch to press without without looking at it. And, um, yeah, so he, he was in the in the right-hand seat when I was in the left on the day we did it. And Reg Taylor, who was a fitter on those engines on the um, Air Force Hastings. Oh, yes, yeah. He was in the back. And, and it was a pretty hard case because old Ian Garlick, who's a bit of a legend in aviation maintenance around, around Marlborough. Yep. He'd paid a bit of attention to it, but never really came out to see exactly what was going on until the day after we'd done a hot oil prime. We are just putting the spark plugs in and he comes racing over, no, give me that, oh, let, let, oh, no, I'll, do, I'll do those, you, can't give me that. you guys go do this and this and this. Yep. And so he climbs up the ladder, he starts putting spark plugs in about 15 minutes before we turn the key. Right. Yes, so that was typical of old, uh, old garlic. <laughs> Very typical, yeah. And then from there, um, yeah, she was, she was keen. And there's, there's the video on, on YouTube of it starting for the first time. Yes, yep. And I think the only thing I did wrong there was when the, the book said to open the throttle an inch, and you saw those big throttle levers, they're about a foot long. Yeah, yeah. I'd opened the throttle lever an inch away from his mate, out by the hand, by the hand grip. Oh, yep. But the inch that the, the manual was after was down at, the, down at the pivot point, really. So we'd only just cracked the throttle, even though they were an inch apart, or an yep. inch open, they weren't officially... Throttle, the throttle wasn't open. Ah, so, right. Um, she sort of struggled as a result of that. Yep. Uh, whereas I think if we just opened the throttle just a bit more, and I, I was sort of very wary about the priming of it because it was an electric primer. Yeah. A lot of the pilots said you can have a carburetor fire quite easily. Um, we had, I think the Air Force Fire Brigade came out. They were they were there, which was nice. Yep. And um, yeah. And I remember getting the okay from the guys on the fire bottle down below, and the, the propeller was clear. And um, of course, with that with that big um, big radial engine, you've got to make sure those cylinders were all clear of oil. So you flick the starter on, and inside the starter, a massive big clutch, a breakaway clutch. And of course, initially the starter's spinning, but the engine's not until this clutch builds up enough torque to overcome the, the internal friction of the engine. Right. So when we flicked the starter and it, it's spinning but the engine's not, there was sort of a bit of a groan outside. Everyone's going, uh-oh. And I remember Lester Hope going, that's okay, boys. <laughs> and then the, the clutch eventually built up and then the propeller started spinning. So we counted it through those four blades. And then with the, with the priming pump running, primed it for another four blades and flicked the mags on and she just kicked into life straight away. Wow. It didn't want to run, but there was, there was life there and it was... Um, 
you know, everything we'd want to do with smoke and flames and soot and all sorts of, yeah, all sorts of debris coming out the exhaust. And, and it, it, it ran, but reluctantly on that first go. Yep. And then it sort of ran out of puff and stopped. And that's when Lester came running up the, up the cabin, up into the cockpit. He was all excited. Yep. And we got to start a motor rest for a little bit and, um, second go, I remember we saw another big belch of flame out of one exhaust, so we stopped it at that point, had to think about things. And on the third go, yeah, off she went. Right. Yep. And it didn't respond to the throttle initially uh, until the oil, because it's, it's a um, very, very complex carburetor. It needs oil pressure and oil flow through the carburetor to operate the throttle butterflies. Oh, okay. So it had no real control over those butterflies until all the old stodgy oil had, had been shifted on and and then off she went, yeah. Right, right, right. I, I remember the the day very well um, following it on the forum, and of course by then you had a worldwide audience following you. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it was it was almost as exciting as the first flight of the Mosquito, because, you know, we'd all been sort of watching and, you know, taking all uh, t- taking it all in as it, it built up as a, as a, a project, and, and then get to the day when it actually... Uh, fired up and suddenly there's the video on um on the forum and it was just absolutely magic yeah yeah wasn't it yeah, yeah. no it was it was it was pretty cool and there was yeah, a lot of old guys that um they didn't want to admit it but yeah there was a few tears oh yeah down, downstairs yeah i'll bet i'll bet yeah and and big grins you know bill bill hadn't flown one for 40 years he went on to the argosy when it turned up in 19, 1970 71 or so he hadn't flown one for a long long time and yeah oh it was great fun yeah, yeah. And we wanted to we wanted to run that second engine on that day, the starboard one, but the hot oil priming process took a lot longer than we'd hoped. Right. So I think we came back the next day or yeah, that was the Friday night. And then I think it was Saturday, it was the next day we, we ran that starboard engine. Yep. And and it, it just burst into life like it hadn't ever been shut down. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was awesome. Yeah, but it had that lubrication problem that we all know about. Yep, yep. With the old oil pump, and uh, it took a lot. It took the same time again. So after we ran that engine, noticed the oil pressure problem, stopped it. It took yeah, it took another three months to get that engine sorted before it could run again. Right, right. Yeah, which was a shame because you, you couldn't tell from looking at it. It was the only fact that the the oil tank filler cap access panel had been left off it or wasn't there and water had got into that oil system and taken the acid with it into that magnesium oil pump oh okay and it dissolved the pump from the inside out right right yes yeah, so when we did the hot oil prime there was indications of oil pressure and of course once we started it oil pressure was there but then the oil pressure started dropping away and that poor old engine had been sitting there for you know 20 odd years yep and it was running beautifully, but we had to stop it, and yeah, you know, it seized shortly afterwards. Yeah. And that was that was the hard bit, getting that that engine freed up again. Right, right. Yeah. It's still uh, even now not not uh, right, is it? No, no. We. Yeah, it's a difficult one. That it's it's um. Yeah, it's still got lubrication issues. I think it's, it's, you know, it runs beautifully and it's got got good oil pressure, 
but it does have trouble scavenging oil and now it's starting to get some metal debris in the filters and, and until we can work out where that's coming from we've made the decision not to run it again right right we can because it's possible probable that it's fixable yeah it just uh, it just needs someone there like i used to be with a bit of time exactly yeah and yeah. you know it's, it's possible that it, it could uh, it could go again and um it's after the engine runs initially um one of the great things to see was uh, taking part in that air show that you'd wanted to, you'd wanted to get it into um you know taxing around and being part of the show that was fantastic wasn't it yeah 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 it was uh it was yeah i was surprised once we got the engines running how how keen she was to be involved yeah yeah because I, I was thinking oh the brakes and the, the steering and the, the tailwheel castering system and I was thinking, crikey, that could be another um, another few months' job to get the pneumatics un- all squared away. And of course, you know, it's got pneumatic it's got compressors on the engine to charge the brakes and the flaps. And 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 I remember looking at the the brakes after we ran both engines. I think for the first time, we're thinking, right, well, this thing, you know, let's let's look to get this thing taxiing. But of course, we couldn't do that until we could be sure that we could stop it certainly or steer it at least yep and I remember looking at the brake pucks and they were just wedged rock hard against the uh, the brake discs and there was no way they wouldn't budge and I was just thinking well they've either corroded themselves into the brake calipers yep which is going to be a massive job and I thought oh crikey it might not it might just be too hard to get it taxiing in time for the show right right but what had happened is it had been parked on the on its pad with the park brake on and then as we'd run the engines and the compressors had pumped up the pneumatics, of course the park brake had, had activated. Ah. So we were up in the cockpit having a bit of a talk about it and we saw this big Austin park brake thing that those aeroplanes have and we pushed it back in and we heard this hissing hissing and squirting. Yep. And I think the aeroplane sort of settled back onto its chocks. Oh, right. Oh, so we raced back down the stairs and those, those pucks that we, we'd thought had either stuck onto the brake disc or were were co- corroded um, had their you know there was clearance they'd, they'd pop back in so great the, the brakes didn't need any work so then yeah it was uh, it was yeah looking like and then of course Marty Nickel was he was flatting at the air club flat next to the airplane yep and he'd become involved by that point and he'd gone and painted the Royal Mail, the little markings, the Royal Mail emblems under the windows. Oh, right, that's right, yeah. They faded away. Yep. And they come up really, really good, which made the rest of the paint look really, really bad. <laughs> and that was sort of Marty's beginning of his, the involvement was, was the idea, well, shit, we can't really display it like it is now, covered in moss and lichen and and looking like it was. So, yeah, it was, it was him that... That, uh, yeah, painting those emblems that made the white look bad, and then we thought, oh gee, I think we we, we painted the red because that that was the easy bit to do with yep. the nose doors and the red stripe. Yep. Well, then now the fin looks rubbish. Oh, oh god! So we got a cherry picker and did the fin. Oh, now the white looks rubbish. <laughs> so yeah, again the block of flats thing comes into mind, and it was, it was like painting a block of flats. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I remember when I got down there for that air show um, on the Thursday, you guys were still painting it then. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, we didn't get time to do the glare shield. It was the only thing we couldn't do in time. That's right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, so we'd completely repainted the airplane, other than the grey, because the grey was actually in, still in pretty good nick. Yep, yep. It really looked a million dollars, though. When, it? Yeah. At, at the air show, it looked like a brand new aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. great. Yeah, so that was that was good. And, of course, that was the show where the, um, it was the Italian-themed air show, so we had all the Vespers. That's right, that's right. And we had a dozen Vespers in the cabin. Yeah, because that was the other job we had to do too, and the panic of painting it and and moving it and what have you was making the vehicle ramp. Yeah, that's right, that's right. And that was done by uh, a lot of work was done by uh, um, Owen Hughes. Yep. Who was a who I see of safe air. He was a Bristol captain. So yeah, it was great bringing all those old guys out. You know, Bill Ashley was there for the first start. Um, Owen Hughes built the vehicle ramp for it. Jim Howard, who ferried it out in '66 from the UK, he was our first passenger. Well, he wasn't a passenger; he was an occupant when we ran the engines for the first time together. Yep. Uh, he's in his 90s now. Right. We, we tracked him down. He came out for that. Uh, we used it for as a hearse for a couple of funerals. Yep. Yep. Was, that was pretty special, and and especially in Bill, uh, Bill Ashley's case, when Bill passed on, we used the airplane to carry his 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 coffin out right. of the hearse. Right. Yeah, yeah, just little things like that. But yeah, that air show was was um, yeah, it was um, it was good fun. And we, we obviously there was a lot of help from a di- lot of different individuals and different companies. It was great to have those people on board too. When we that taxi ride we did around the airfield. Yep. We had the cabin completely chocker full of people and yeah, you know how many were up in the flight deck? <laughs> yeah, I, I was down the back. Yeah, and it yeah. was just absolutely magic I mean honestly I seriously thought shit I think we're going to take off in a minute it's it's so noisy it, it actually sounds like you know you're on the brink of taking off and you reckon it was going pretty slow <laughs> yeah yeah but you know you just you don't you don't get that these days with aircraft with that that real um that, that real deep rumble that that you get in the back of that it's just great yeah yeah uh, that was something we had to be quite careful of because it's, you know, it's a 4,000 horsepower airplane Mm. And when we taxi it round, we've got probably 60 or 80 litres of fuel on board and no freight. Um, yeah, she would boogie if you let it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, we haven't... The pneumatics um, don't hold pressure at the moment very well. There's quite a few leaks in there. And at the idle, sort of low RPMs, the compressors can't keep up with our braking demand for steering it. So if we decided to, you know, to take it out on the runway and get a bit silly... Um, there's a very good chance you wouldn't stop it at the other end. <laughs> you might accidentally do one of those um, Victor takeoffs. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that wouldn't be so good either because the ailerons and the elevators have been reskinned in commercial light aluminium. Yep. By a group of periodic tension boys, one day they they got uh, because we'd taken years ago, we took the fabric off because birds were getting getting into the elevators and. Yep. So these PD boys, they um, they got asked to pop rivet these new skins back on. Okay. So they would probably unzip pretty pretty quickly in the piece, but I've always said if there was a tsunami coming and you needed to get two or three kilometres inland, you know, if that was the only way of doing it, I probably would. Because <laughs> it, it would, yeah, it would certainly would fly. Oh, crikey. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It wants to, too, eh? You can feel it. Yeah, it does. It yeah, really does. a bit about it. Because when you take it out on the runway, you can only go up to a couple of thousand RPM and let the brakes off, and then you've got to sort of think about stopping again. And of course, it's like taking an excited puppy out on a run. <laughs> yeah. It just wants to go crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is a bit sad, but um, 
But then again, I mean, you think about it, how many places around the world have taken um, what's really a dead aircraft as, as a gate guardian and brought it back to life and thrilled crowds with it? I mean, there can't be many that have done that. A big, no. big aircraft like that, I mean, a few Spitfires, yes, but big aircraft like that, there can't be many people who have actually achieved that, Al. A lot of the crowds that do the taxiing sort of things have been given an airworthy airplane, haven't they? And they've, yep. they've had funds and, and means to, to maintain them. Yep. And yeah, so there yeah. wouldn't be very many. And that's the sort of encouragement I'd like to give people, is if they've got a what they think is an old junker on the corner of their airfield, or, um, yeah. Yeah, I have seen a video, there is a video on YouTube somewhere of someone that did it to a Russian twin-engine Russian transport. Okay. Uh, it's a sort of a lot newer, sort of a Condair-type radial engine-powered thing. But, yeah, no, I can't think of too many. And in terms of um, Bristol freighters, it's the only operable one at the moment, isn't it? In it is, yeah. Only one that can move and make noise. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's pretty special. There's a couple special. of the museums in, in Canada, um, the ex-Hawkeye, um, I think the Hawkeye machines that are in, the, in museums. Yep. Could because they, they were flowing there, then parked indoors. Right. Um, but, yeah. But no, this, the one at marker is the only one that, at the moment, can. Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool. There's a few of them still around uh, New Zealand um, in museums as well, but uh, obviously not in operable condition. But it, it's quite a neat aircraft with a neat history, isn't it? Mm, it is. Yeah. Yeah. We've. Uh, I gave Alan Graham the keys one day. Alan... Very, very senior captain. He flew the very last Argosy flight. Oh, yeah. And uh, we gave him the chance to run it one day, and and he did a lot of yachting years ago. And he had a he got a capsize or a mast broke or something. He got lost in in the Cook Strait, and that freighter flown by by Owen actually he got rescued by that airplane. Oh, okay. Yeah. So there's little little bits of history. You know, it's a special airplane to to him because uh, you know, it didn't might not have saved his life but it certainly um saved his day yeah 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 no it is it's a special machine yeah yeah and of course a lot of people around uh nelson um marlborough wellington area they'll, they'll remember those safe air um aircraft and, and particularly the bristols um crossing the strait a couple of times a day weren't they really yeah well they there's the the big the big fable if you like of the New Zealand rail guy that came to visit Woodburn when they had the rail contract on the freighters yep. on the Cook Strait and he said surely we're wasting money with that, that bloke doing touch and goes in that airplane all day surely he's wasting money surely we can fix that yep. and that wasn't one bloke doing touch and go circuits that was the frequency of that airplane coming in and out of Marlborough wow it just looked like it was someone doing doing circuits because yeah, they had um, I think 12 airplanes perhaps yeah, at their peak, operating yep. flat out. Yeah, no, they 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 certainly made Marlborough before, certainly before the grapes turned up. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, even when you and I joined the air force, there wasn't much in the way of grapes down there, was there? But the Argosies were still flying around. Mm. No, there's, you know, when I was doing my PPL training, we could go out and we could do a, a precaution or a practice force landing, and pick a paddock. Yep. And in some cases, the instructor would choose what looked like a paddock, but it was actually a, a an airstrip. Yeah. So those airstrips and paddocks are gone now. It's just posts and wires and nasty old grapes. So yeah, it's uh, certainly a different area to fly around. But, um, yeah, definitely. But yeah, you know, Marlborough was yeah 
It didn't have much else going for it at the time. Well, it was all just sort of dusty sheep paddocks when I lived down there. Mm. Yes, so no, that, that freighter, it's nice that the freighter and the Argosy, there's one of each still preserved in Marlborough. Yeah, yeah. It had any thoughts about getting the Argosy going? <laughs> oh, turbines, man. <laughs> we haven't got engines for a start, but... Oh, uh, isn't it? All right. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, the Rolls-Royce Dart, it's a beautiful engine. It does. It's been going, but it's, there's no... There's no charm to them. You know, there's, there's no... Yeah. I, I used to think of, when I was flying the Beechcraft, the 1900, you, know, you might spend a day working on the freighter and do some ground runs and stuff, and then you come you come to work and you've tried your best to get yourself cleaned up and you, you're still, you know, you've had a shower and you're still smelling of oil and this and that and you jump into that thing and just flick the switch and turn the uh, starter on and turn the fuel in yep. and bang, she's going. You know, those those Bristol, as you saw, you know, you've got switch that goes one way and pumps that go this and that and it's, um, you know, it has to be brought to life. That oh, happens. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it's nice to fly turbine engines and, you know, make a living from flying between them because they're reliable and safe, and uh, yeah, there's very little surprises in them. But there's no there's no personality to them. No, no, I I agree with that. Um, but at the same time, uh, man, it was good to see that friendship at a market this year. Oh, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because you know I hadn't seen I hadn't seen a display like that for twenty odd years, and the last one would have been the Air Force doing it. Yeah. Um, but you know, it just brought back such great memories of those aircraft. And and suddenly the dart, which used to be a bloody annoying thing at, when I lived at Woodburn, it was the thing that woke you up in the middle of the night, um, was now, wow, that sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a funny engine, isn't it? It makes makes more. It's, it's abrasive and noisy and and irritating at idle. Yeah, it makes more noise idling than it does at takeoff power. Yeah, absolutely. Change engine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know that's the. the early POMI equivalent of the, the Pratt & Whitney PT-6, you know, those things, you know, they're a dependable machine. Yes, yep. yeah. Yep. Yeah, in terms of getting, yeah, if, if the Argosy perhaps had engines, oh, imagine what the neighbours would think, we were at Jet Park now. <laughs> yeah. 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 But of course you've, um, you've moved on to um, another Hercules project after that, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, and that was, that was by accident. That was that was from going looking for an oil pump, right? When when that oil pump had dissolved itself, and of course we're looking for reasons why we we had no lubrication. Pulled the oil pump off, and it was just a block of soap internally. Yep. That was. I thought, well, we need another one, and and like 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 the cheater engines years ago, Oxfords and and what have you were scrapped in Marlborough. There's a lot of Oxford stuff. Still a lot, well, not much these days, but. You know those those airplane types that have got scrapped. There were still bits and pieces lying around. So yep, yep. the freighter and the Argosy was the same because they were chopped up and disposed of in Marlborough. Yep. So you don't have to go searching for very long to find someone that knows someone that might have bits and pieces. And and I went out to Rapara, the second place I visited. <coughs> we were looking through boxes and and because he had a whole lot of stuff that was was dumped at the end of the freighter's life and we couldn't find an oil pump but by gee we found just about one of everything else <laughs> including that engine that I got right right and we couldn't find the oil pump and two weeks later Grant rang me up he says now, all that stuff we went through recently you know I've got no use for it um, you guys probably have now that that airplane's uh, running again you know if there's anything here you want come and take it 
and he'd actually gone with his forklift and put everything into apple cakes and uh, crates and pallets and what have you. Okay. And so there was boxes and boxes, tons, probably a couple of tons of Bristol Spears, airframe and engine bits. Right. And this Hercules engine. And he donated all of that to to the freighter. Yep. And I actually said to him, well, well that engine there, because he'd, he'd found two Hercules at the Renwick dump. So he pushed off a truck and, and dumped. Yep. And he was there at the time, and he asked Francie, Francie Morrison, I think it was, well, if you don't mind, do you mind dumping all that stuff at my house? <laughs> and that's the reason those two engines were saved. He's still got one. Yep. And I, I, I bought the one that became mine. I bought it off him with a view to doing exactly what he wanted to do, and that was getting one running on a on a frame or a trailer. Right, right. Yeah. And it was only really through the forum that that, that project became possible because, you know, Paul Hawkins of Hawk Air in, in British Columbia and Canada, yep. he'd been following the freighter project and he was awesome with a lot of the advice for this and that. And, yep. And, of course, he had no aircraft anymore, but they still had Hercules spares, so... And when my engine came to pieces and all those sleeve valves were were corroded beyond use, that's when he stepped in and said, well, I've got some in Canada if you'd like them. Okay. Yeah, so again, the, the forum was a good tool to get that airplane operational. Right. And it was, a, it was the only way that my engine would ever have come, yeah, um, been restored was through, yeah, Paul reading online about it. That's um that's really neat, and you know the forum does that so often. I hear um, wherever I go, people say, "Oh, you because of the forum, I got put in touch with someone else who has helped me with this or that, whether it's research or whether it's parts or you know all that kind of thing." And it, it's really great. But what was really good with your engine is that there were so many forum members present when you first started it. You remember remember yeah. the, the day you started it? There was heaps of us there, which you know everyone had been following that project and. You know, you had a little audience of forum members. Yeah, and I remember saying, because when I, because I, I started, I, I started restoring that in, in GM Aviation's hangar. Yep. Jay McIntyre let me um, use the corner of his workshop to to strip that engine down and repair it, reassemble it. Yep. So it had been, the engine was pretty much finished in Marlborough, but then of course I got the, the flying job down in Christchurch, so I had to pack up and leave. Right. And I took that engine down to Christchurch and finished it. And that's when I built the trailer and and got the propeller organised and so I was always saying to Graham Orson that it would be um, rude of me not to have the first run in Blenheim yeah. where all these people and organisations and companies had, had helped and it was only because I started running out of time that I had to get it freighted back up from Christchurch to Blenheim yep. and I had no choice because we had one or two problems and and I couldn't run it in Christchurch so yeah so I kept my word. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it worked out really well because two years after you'd run the um, Bristol freighter and taxi it around the the airfield for the air show, you turned up with your um, newly completed engine. Yeah, and, yeah. And and we were all there to see it. So. And I think yeah, because we had that first run, because we had the we had the false alarms, a number of those. A number of them, yeah, through the weekend, really, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and then we had that. Was it Saturday night, was it? I think it was Saturday night, yeah. Yeah, because we tried Thursday and Friday, and then Saturday night, um, yeah, that's that's when you ran it. Yeah, so we ran it for the very first time in the dark. Yep, in the rain. 
in the rain, yeah. Yeah, we're all standing under the wing of the Bristol freighter to to um, keep out of the rain while yeah, you think it on yeah. it. Yeah, we're lucky because we've got video footage of it and some yep. quite good photos. Yep. And then we displayed it on the Sunday for the public. That's it's right, a, that's a right. typical Kiwi air show sort of thing. Yep. First time people get to see it. It's the first time it runs or flies or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. That's what always seems to happen, eh? Yeah, yeah. And then this year's air show, for the 2013 air show, um, you were a, a set display um, with your own little area and... Um, I saw you run it a couple of times there, and man, did you get a crowd on the Saturday. What? Yeah, <laughs> Larry Gutsall had his Allison yep. alongside me. Yep. Yeah, so we had a V12 Allison and a 14-cylinder radial. But yeah, we, we were surprised with the crowds we got. I mean, the crowd was just huge. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. When I put the, I held the camera up over my head and took a photo, and when I looked at it, I was like, wow, there's far more people lined up in, in banks behind... Uh, yeah. You know, the initial barriers that I couldn't see on ground level. So that that really amazed me. Yeah, I got sent some photos, and they were 10 deep. Yeah, oh, easily, easily, yeah. We had probably 40-metre perimeter around our engine, so yeah, a lot of people. People, a lot of people were apparently ran down out of the gold path. Oh, right. heard these things, and uh, yeah, sort of not so much turned their back on the air show side of things, but um, yeah, no, it drew, it drew a massive crowd. Yeah, that yeah, way, yeah. Actually, a couple of times I had to say to Laurie, I think we'll just, because we had certain times that we had advertised yep. that we'd run these things, and I was very wary of, of because of the noise, the noise the bloody thing makes, Yep. Um, what was displaying at the time, you know, if it was things like the Fock Wolf, or, the, or the, certainly the V12, the Warbird Fighters, I was certainly aware of, of um, detracting from, from their display. Exactly, the yeah. Noise yeah, because we started, that first time we started at Omaka on the Thursday, I think it was, a lot of people thought it was the Fock Wolf starting up. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I was there when you started that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah people yeah. go, oh, who's running the Fock Wolf? And of course they look at it. Oh, no one is. Jeez, <laughs> yeah. that bloody engine. <laughs> and it's the first time Laurie's ever used earplugs. Oh, okay. He runs his Allison V12 um, quite happily, but no, he started pulling out his earplugs. All right. And I was surprised. I, I'd forgotten how loud the thing was. Yeah, well, it, it certainly yeah it attracts attention, doesn't it? With that noise, it's yeah. br brilliant noise, though. And the the very the special thing was with that show was, you know, Grant had saved those engines from the from the dump. Yep. In eighty six or eighty seven, and yeah, Marty Nickel and myself we we took it round to Grant's orchard, and uh, and ran it for him. Wow. Yeah, so he hadn't seen it for four years since I took it away. Yeah, so he was pretty impressed. Yeah, awesome. And awesome. neighbour's house disappeared briefly when we started it. <laughs> in the smoke. And my car was 40 metres from it. And we went back to my car and the mirrors and the windscreens all covered in oil. Oh, no. Not coated, but certainly yep. specked. And then, of course, dust got on there. And then, Oh, yeah. Yeah. But that's the reason we enjoy those, those things, because of the smoke and the soot and oil. Yeah. Yeah, but we actually ran that. I think we would have run it over a dozen times throughout, throughout certainly throughout the weekend, and then Marty and I did some adjustments on it on the Monday or the Tuesday after the show, and it's running really good now. We got rid of the, the rich mixture and the the black soot and what have you. It's yep. running really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you know, you were mentioning the uh, the oil and the and the smoke and the and the soot, um, and it reminded me that you have another project that you're working on at the moment and that's a um, locomotive steam engine yes how's that going 
It's going good. Yeah. Um, I just spent well, several hours on it today. Oh, yeah? And, and that's a, a five-inch gauge steam locomotive that the dad built right. when, when I was a baby. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very lucky, and I think I've, I've mentioned the support that I've had through you know, businesses and companies with, with my Hercules engine. Yep. But, yeah, I've really got to say that it's, it's taking up mum's workshop with mum's garage at home. Yep. Which has always been a workshop. And, yeah, I certainly couldn't have done the Hercules project and this locomotive one without without the use of mum's shed. Yeah. So <laughs> that, yeah, that was, that was built by Dad when I was, when I was born. Yep, yep. It was operational when I was born, and then because I turned up, he never really got to finish it. He was able to run it for a good 15 years on, on the tracks that we had in Christchurch. Yep. But never got to do all the, the fiddly detailing decorations. Okay, okay, yep. And uh, what, I've, what I've done is I've repaired a lot of the wear and the, the cylinders and, and made new components, but I've also gone a step further, actually, to um, to detail it. So... There's a lot of detail work, making little air and steam compressors and plumbing and pipelines and steps and boarding rails and um, all sorts of little bits and pieces. So Great. Yeah, so it's had its boiler recertified um, about six weeks ago. Okay. And that's the requirement. All those, all those boilers, the thing runs at 100 psi. And um, yeah, it's a big locomotive. It's, it's, like I said, it's a five-inch gauge tank engine. Yep. So it's five inches between its wheels, which makes it at that scale about four foot eight long. Okay, yep, yep. Yeah, it's very, very powerful machine. 100 psi with, I think it's got two inch pistons, two inch bore. You know, you can have six carriages of, or three carriages of six people. Okay, okay. Easily, easily tow a ton of people around the track. Right. Yeah, so, so with that, we have to get the boilers. The boilers always have to be certified. And. Yeah, it hadn't had a boiler certificate since 1983, so so that was pretty exciting to get that that done. Definitely, definitely. And I'm just in the final process now of putting it all back together, so hopefully within the next month or so she'll be back on the track and... Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. So Dad's pretty excited about that. Yeah, yeah, I bet. What, what actually um, uh, fuels it? Uh, coal. It is coal, it's a yeah. coal one. Oh, great. Yeah. So you got the little... Uh, got um, you got the little hatch that you throw the coal in, just like a, a, a full-size steam yeah, chain. Yeah, a little fire door. It's got a, a shovel, a coal shovel. Um, it's a tank engine. It's a, it's a tank locomotive. So it's got two water tanks either side of the boiler. Yep. Which hold probably 15, 20 litres each, maybe. Okay. Oh, probably not quite that much, but yeah. So you've got you've got pumps that run off the axles, water pumps. Yep. To keep feeding the boiler, and there's also a hand pump for when you're not moving. So yeah. It's, yeah, it's the real deal. You know, you've got to keep water in the boiler. You've got to keep, you know, if you if you if you chewing through, um, if you've got a big load and you're going up a hill or whatever around this track, you've got to keep the coal in and you've got to keep the water level at a certain point in the boiler so yep. it doesn't explode. And yep. yeah, yeah. So I'm looking forward to that. Oh, definitely, definitely. Where, whereabouts will you be running it? Out at uh, Hallswell. There's a um, there's a track we've got out there. It's uh, the um, CSMEE is the Canterbury Society of Model and Experimental Engineers. Okay. Yeah, they they used to have a track in Sprayton in the suburbs in Christchurch, but it got it got uh, moved out to Hallswell. Right. And it, um, yeah, 
one, one of the tracks is a kilometre long, just over a kilometre. Yep. Goes through a little, little forest, and it's got bridges and water crossings and stuff like that. So. Sounds great. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully in the next, certainly before before winter, I'd like to have that back on the track. Well, you'll definitely um, once you get it going, you'll have to um, advertise on the on the forum, and people can come out and have a look. Yeah, I should actually put some progress photos. From, I've been doing it for the last year. I should actually post a little, make up a thread. Yeah. Post some photos for interest. Yeah, I reckon because there's a lot of uh, steam fans out there. You know, most aviation fans are steam fans as well. Oh yeah. In, in a big like way or a small way. Like, um, steam locomotives. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a diesel locomotive is to me comparable to a turbine engine. Exactly. Yeah. It's a job done, but yep. you know, it's not much fun to look at or listen to. Yeah, exactly. The steam uh, has the romance and the history and and all that. It doesn't. It? That the um, diesel doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the steam, you've got to bring a steam engine to life, just like you do a radial engine. Yep. Yep. Or any of those, any of those angry old piston engines. Yeah, they're not. Um, yeah, yeah. They've, they've got a personality. Um, yeah, it's got a little coal bunker on the back. Yep. Has it got a name? No, no. Well, New Zealand ones never had. You know, the, the, the English guys that had, you know, flying Scotsmen and this yep. and that and Britannias and and for some reason New Zealand just had the model number. Oh right, okay. And this is a, it's a, a WW, which was the model. It's a suburban tank locomotive. Yep. That actually became very very successful and it, uh, it didn't have the the grunt of the big K's and J locomotives, but um, it was certainly very, very, um, a very, very successful engine. Yeah. So okay. Were they main trunk line type engines? Yeah. It, it, towards the, the end, they were. Yeah, they yep. were. They were sort of used a lot around Westport, hauling coal and what have you. But there's two of them in Glenbrook preserved. They still operate up there. Okay. Um, I'm looking forward to actually seeing them in, in real life. Motat's got one of them. Oh yeah, and Silverstream's got one as well, preserved. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because it's it's a very it's, it's modelled on a very specific photo that Dad took years ago. Yeah. And one of the big brass cast makers plates from that locomotive turned up on Trade Me. Ah right. Recently, so yeah, I had a bit of a battle, a bit of a fight with another bloke who wanted it. Yep. I had the locomotive that, well, the one that Dad built was was taken off that very plate that turned up on Trade Me. Oh, right, right. Yeah. And you got it? Yeah, I got it. Oh, great, great. Yeah, yeah. It got a bit silly towards the end of the price that it was going for, but, um, you know, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's 100 years old this year, that locomotive. Oh, wow. Mm. Well, that's, that makes it even more appropriate to get your one on the track, doesn't it? True. Yeah, good point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, they had a they had a big tank plate which had it had its number plate if you like. Yep. And they had the maker's plate behind the cab. And this is the maker's plate, so it's got the, the hillside workshops and and its number and its and its date. Oh, okay. Big plate and it was oh, it's over I forget how many fourteen kilos of brass. It's a big, big plate if it's not this little um yeah, it would be as, as deep as a phone book and probably as wide as a phone book open. Wow. Big, big cast plate, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so it's pretty cool to have the actual maker's plate from the locomotive that Dad copies. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. That's really cool. Have you got any sort of um, future projects in mind once the train's uh, up and running and, and um, you know, um, 
you've got you've got your Bristol Hercules going now and that. So is there anything in the wings for another engineering project? Got, yeah, I've, I've got my old cheater engine, which I did up as a, as a teenager. Yep. Uh, I got real carried away with that, and then we imported the Nanchang, and I never really finished it properly. I got it running. Yep. And it's a, it's a Mark Nine cheater off a uh, no Mark Ten off an Oxford. Okay. That's also in my shed. I'd I'd like to get that running properly one day. Um, That'd be cool. Yeah, that would be nice to finish off. And I, I yeah. I got halfway through, or third of the way through, building a replica Gatling gun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a few years back too, and yeah, I'd, I've got to work out the legalities of doing those things. But it's, yeah, it's a ten-barrel, twenty-two caliber replica of a Civil War Gatling gun. <laughs> that sounds dangerous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's in a box. There, yeah, I'd like, to, I'd like to finish that one day. Yeah. That's an awful lot of work. It almost needs a CNC lathe to make, because you're making ten of everything. Right, right. And then again, I don't know of the legality of operating them, or, well, or even owning them. It, it actually sounds like something you could um, take down to Otago and shoot rabbits with. Oh yeah, yeah, you could. <laughs> Mounted on a ute. Yeah, I've, but there was plans. I've got the plans for it, and I've done the barrel clusters all done. It's like a little um, mini gun, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like it. Ten barrels, yeah, yeah. But I should probably something a bit more useful but yeah yeah that uh, either that or that the cheetah would be nice to, to get running because they're a nice nice old engine oh definitely simple. yep yeah oh cool oh well thank you very much al for uh, taking part in this interview um it's actually a real pleasure for me to be able to um do this interview with you because you're the only person so far who's told me that you've listened to every Wings Over New Zealand show episode and, and enjoyed them all. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's yeah. quite that's quite special to me. It's quite good. Yeah, we have, you know, we overnight around the Pacific Islands and a lot of time in hotels in, in Australia. Yep. So that we've got downtime with, with the work that I do now. So it's, um, it's nice to have a little podcast like that. You can download stuff in, in your hotel and have a listen to it. And Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I'll look forward to whatever else comes out too. Yeah, well, there's a lot on the horizon. I've just got to get around to getting to all these people and um, getting things recorded, but I've probably got another uh, maybe at the moment around about 10 to 15 um, shows in the works. So, you know, there's a lot more to come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. great. Oh, no, no, it's uh, certainly a pleasure, yeah. And like I say, it was, it was through the forum and and a lot of input from individuals and businesses and, and certainly my parents that anything, these these two projects, or the Bristol and, and my engine and my little locomotive, yep. um, it's only because of the forum and, and people like you that uh, yeah, stuff like that can get done. Yeah, well, it's a, yeah, it's a handy place, isn't it? It's a handy place to hang out, the old forum. Yeah. You get yeah. to meet some good people. Yeah, and it's an interesting time. You know, it flares up every now and again, and <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Dave comes in to do damage control. <laughs> it's a, again, it's it's a living it's a living um, organism by itself, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I've said to a few people lately that I think I could just disappear and it would keep on going forever. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting if you yeah, crikey, it'd be like those random civilization movies where people where there's no police or anything. It'd be interesting to see what it would be after <laughs> no input. <laughs> Yeah, well, who knows. But, uh, yeah, well, thanks very much, Al. No worries. And um, we'll catch you probably at another air show soon, running your engine or 
maybe at a train show, running your train, you should bring it up to Cambridge and run on our new track. Yeah, well, I saw your track. I think you're only a single gauge. I think you're seven and a quarter inch. Oh, okay. I saw the photos. Yeah. Because there's some, some, yeah, some nice machines up there, but yeah, mine being an old, it's 40-something years old now. Yeah. Um, it's built in the days before those big, big gauge tracks. Oh, right, okay, okay. That's a shame. But certainly, if I, you know, I might have to move to Auckland with work in the next year or so, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, I'll be taking it up there. Oh, cool. Yeah, because I've got um, two or three gauges of of, uh, of track. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, like, like I say, I, I'll, I'll post some photos at some point of where I started and where it is now. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, well, I'll catch you on the forum. Okay, Dave. Cheers. Nice one. Cheers. See you later. See ya. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.